Now, where did I put it? Hmm. Ah, here it is. Welcome to the Toolbox, where we discuss the tools we utilize every day. Yours to use or toss, it's up to you. But I hope you enjoy. So I'm just I'm just a facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> hey everybody, welcome back to uh, episode three of Tools for the Toolbox. We are joined by two fantastic guests, and we're going to be talking about some really cool stuff. So I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves, but you're going to have to fight over who goes first. So who are you, and what is your military background? Lead the charge, Grace. Ah. Oh, wow! You, we, we, there you go. He goes You're, straight to the last name. He doesn't call me by my last name. That's there you it. Go. I'll start calling him Coffee and watch him twitch until he just <laughs> yeah. Leave the charge, Curtis. <laughs> no, don't leave the charge. That's there too that's too ripe with militarism. Uh, uh, yeah. It could be it could be militaristic. Just take the helm, Curtis. Oh, oh, nice naval. naval. I like it. <laughs> Ahoy! Ahoy! Let's right, give her. So my, my name is uh, Curtis Grace. I am one of the creators and hosts of the Pandroy Podcast. My military experience, I uh, was a 11 Bravo infantryman in the United States Army from 2010 until, two, wait, 2011 until 2014, at which point I joined the correct side of the military and became Ooh. a warrant officer in the United States Army. Nice. Uh, and became an H-64 Apache helicopter pilot. I did that until 2019 when I got out of the military, uh, and that's my military background. Okay, sweet. My name is Luke Coffey, and I am the co-creator and ri- really, really ridiculously good-looking face of the Pandray podcast. <laughs> and uh, Curtis and I, we're Army buddies together, but our histories there are a little different. I joined on Election Day, November 4th of 2008. So I cast my vote that morning, got in the van, and went to basic training. Nice. And I was in the I was in 11 Bravo, or an infantryman. I was in for four and a half years, and uh, that's two deployments, one to Iraq from October 2009 to October 2010, then the second deployment to Panjway, Afghanistan in 2012, where Curtis and I deployed together, and thus the origin of our connection here. Nice. I, I, guess, I, should, I guess I should throw out, I deployed twice, too. I don't want, yeah. I don't want people to think that Luke did more than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, quick question. There's a difference between Canadian military and the uh, American military in that our warrant officers are different so explain to me what a warrant officer is in the army in the u.s versus canada so in the united states a warrant officer is a commissioned officer so mm. same as like a lieutenant or a general or whatever in terms of we are we are an officer okay um the difference is warrant officers are extremely specialized so whereas a, a lieutenant you know in the infantry he could be the commander of anything he can yeah. move up and become a general and lead divisions and stuff and his primary job is leadership. For warrant officers, are, we're subject matter experts. Most warrant officers in the United States Army are pilots. Okay. So basically what they're like, it doesn't make sense for us to have oodles and oodles and oodles of officers just to fly helicopters. And then after they do their time in the company, they have nothing to do. Like yeah. There's not enough billets for you know that many officers. But if warrant officers just stay in the cockpit their entire career, then they basically have their own promotion structure and stuff like that. And we don't just have aviation warrants. We have what we call walking warrants and the walking warrants are like maintenance warrants or their intelligence warrants. Um, oh, okay. they, they, they're in all the different career fields, but these are people that apply to become warrant officers when they're like E seven or E eight um, or even E six is when it usually the earliest you can apply. So they've been doing the job for years. They're really yeah. good at it and they usually go to battalion or brigade level and they're just like the expert at that particular topic and they report directly to the commander. Yeah. 
So, that always made a lot of sense to me too. It just yeah. like as a as a military branch, if you have guys that are really good at shit, keep them doing that stuff, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah, instead of promoting them into <clears throat> positions where they don't they can't yeah. affect it anymore. And that's yeah. the idea is that you keep subject matter experts doing subject matter expert stuff. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about warrants, well, the awkward thing about warrants, they fall directly in between enlisted and officer leadership. So even though we're also commissioned officer. You know, a W-5, which is the highest rank you can be as a ward officer in the U.S. Army, is still junior to the youngest lieutenant. Okay. But but you're senior to any enlisted. You're senior to all the enlisted. So W-1, which you can become a W-1. At, you can go from PFC to W-1. Wow. And now you're senior to the sergeant major. <laughs> which is... Which gets a stick and a lot of crumbs on sergeant oh, majors. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do not like warrant officers. But well, warrant that officers makes... Love it. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. I would have loved as a, as a corporal or a private to be like, yeah, sorry, chief, <laughs> you yeah. don't control me. Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be a bit of a shit show, I think. In, at least in the Canadian military, man, we uh, no, all of our subject matter experts unfortunately get promoted, mm-hmm. or you stay as a corporal for life. Yeah. So you can stay as a corporal and you can refuse promotion at that point, but uh, you don't. You don't make any extra money, and you still you're still corporal, right? Like they don't, they don't force you out after a certain period of time. No, well, I mean, you can you can actually there are guys that have gone 25, 30 year careers as a corporal. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. See, I've always and, thought that they should let us do that. They don't yeah. let they don't let you do that in the U.S. If you if you're like an E four and E five, and you don't promote after a certain period of time, some yeah you get booted. Yeah. Some gone. guys have no business getting promoted, and they get forced up the chain of command because they yeah. just reenlist versus. Yeah guys who you know, maybe you know, that's, a, that's a complicated yeah. subject we, that's, a, that's a whole podcast <laughs> we, have a whole, we have a whole other issue on top of that where is the the guys that are really good as corporals usually stay in a job that's usually tech related so you have like construction engineers who oh, really? all they do is build like they're working the wood shop all day long and they're cool with that and that's a good job for them and they're fine yeah. and they're the maintainers who you know they fix tanks and they hang out and you know they're just in the shop they're not out in the field doing stupid shit and uh they those people stay corporals, but the problem is is that the the shitbirds, the guys that can't do the job, mm-hmm. get promoted because they don't want them on the floor, really? right? Because we don't like this guy; he can't work very problem. well. Get Let's him put up. Put him in charge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it gets because the corporals just do whatever the fuck they want anyway, right? Mm-hmm. You have the mass corporal or sergeant be like, "Okay, everybody, we're gonna work on X, Y, and Z today," and then go back to the office, and then the guys on the floor are gonna be like. I wonder how much that reflects. Well. How much of that reflects British military structure, and how much how much of it is organic to Canadian military? Do you That's know? a good question. That's a good question. I don't, know, I don't have any idea how the British have their enlisted ranks structured. I yeah, I'm not really sure. We yeah, I think we'd have to have a Brit on the show in order to actually figure that one yeah. out. Maybe I should do a show just on rank. That'd be neat. Yeah. Um. So anyway, what do you guys do now? Just like, is it just the podcast right now, or do you guys have? Uh, other civilian jobs or schooling or what do you guys do now well so uh i'll go first this time i got mm. out of the army on march 31st 2013 mm-hmm. i went That's back to school i know the exact day i could almost <laughs> tell you the hour Actually, i, I know the exact leave. day too it's okay <laughs> I, I know how you feel man uh, i went on terminal leave on the 28th of february oh, at about 5 15 in the evening um but yeah i went back to school that august so i had a summer i spent my deployment money traveling around bought myself mm-hmm. a house for school Went and did my undergrad degree um, where I'm from, University of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went and did my master's degree out in Colorado, 
and then last May I just finished my master's, so now kind of on the in between, uh, trying to see where a few different threads lead me. And while my nice. while my life my wife does her PhD here in Tennessee, so but yeah, I've Sweet. basically been in school since I got out. Nice. I I couldn't handle school. I didn't do very well when we when I got out and I went back to school and I just like was surrounded by a bunch of nineteen year old girls and I was like. <laughs> Nope, can't do this. Nope, nope. The part you look forward to about going back—you would think, like as a thirty-something-year-old, as as an eighteen-year-old dude thinking about as a thirty-year-old me, I was a little disappointed myself. (laughs) As a thirty-year-old me, being there surrounded by nineteen-year-old girls, I was like Mm -hmm. trying to rip my eyeballs out and trying to rip my ears because, oh man, sitting in class and all you could hear is fucking. And I was like. I was master corporal burles. I was an instructor right before I left. Mm-hmm. So like that was in my, in my mind, in my brain. I was just like, if we're going to sit in classes, we should be sitting in classes and we got to be able to like, guys, yeah, what are you doing? You're paying to be here. Why aren't hey, you listening to class? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Get off of Facebook, close yeah. the laptop, pay attention to the teacher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I was like losing my shit. Uh, See, uh, so it yeah. didn't work out very well for me, but no, it's good, I, man. If you can, you can take it. it. Yeah. Nice. I loved it because I had complete and total freedom. You know, oh, yeah. I had complete and total agency over what I did with my time. Other than like the 15 hours a week I was sitting in a classroom, I could do whatever the hell I wanted, which is what nice. I drastically missed when I was in the military. Yeah. So. Yeah, I did not get that at all. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Curtis? What are you, uh, what are you doing right now? So I got out and I went straight and I, well, right now I'm being a little bit of a bum. But <laughs> the path to getting there is getting a master's degree and owning a real estate property, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, so I wouldn't call that being a bum, but all right. So I got out. I went and I worked at Amazon for a year working on their drone delivery program okay. as a SME and as a drone pilot. Did that for a year and realized that uh, it wasn't really the position that I wanted within a company like that. I wanted a more of a senior like a management position, yeah. uh, but I didn't really have the, the academic chops for that. I had been working on my degree um the whole time i was in the army i was almost done i was like i'm just gonna go school full-time wrap up my bachelor's launch straight into an mba and i was like well if i'm gonna go to school i should go somewhere i want to be i shouldn't be stuck in downtown seattle yeah so i was like i looked at a lot of places i had family in alaska so i moved to alaska nice um so i'm doing my online mba with indiana university in kelly school business and i do own uh, a couple investment properties up here and i also uh have the podcast so i stay fairly busy on personal projects uh but for the most part it's like luke said i'm just kind of enjoying the freedom to do whatever i want and especially using an online program for my mbas yeah yeah freedom is is uh something you sorely miss from being in right like when you Mm -hmm. are you ready to get going and you're like okay i'm i'm out of here and then man we had like people can do Anything. anything. <laughs> you could do you anything. Can, can I, can, I can go out of state without requesting permission. Exactly. Yeah. Right? I don't yeah. need a piece of paper to tell me I can not be at work today. And it took me a while. I was, uh, I think I missed a test at one point and my I, like massive depressive episode just like, and I started missing classes and then I was like, it was bad. Um, and I had a friend of mine finally call me. I was like, I was freaking out. I was like, I'm going to have to retake this whole year. And he's like, man, no, dude, like just, you, you just, you just show got his final. You're fine. Yeah, show yeah. to the final. Do the freaking thing. You're fine. Uh, and he, and I was freaking out because I what didn't know the subjects and I wasn't paying attention. Like the, all these other things. And he finally looked at me. He's like, "Dude, C's get degrees." Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
oh, <laughs> like it hadn't even yeah. conceptualized for me. Yeah. And yeah, so once I had that, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, if I don't feel like going to class, I don't have to go to class. If I'm having a bad PTSD day, fuck, just like. Just well, that's one thing chill. that is, I think it's been, it was important for me when I transitioned to school was I, I, I have to get an A. You know, yeah. I have to, I have to work towards it. That's just my mindset. I have to do everything's possible to get as good a grade as possible. But yep. at the same time, I have to turn the switch to the other side of the rheostat and be like, but if I get a B or a C, I'm okay. Yeah. Like, but if I'm like, oh, I'm just here to get a C, I will get Fs. <laughs> that's yeah, was just, the same that's, way. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I, I was, I was the same when I went when I went back to school because school is yeah. so much easier, man. Like, I think it's funny that being in college when you're 18, you're like, oh, this is hard. Yeah, but this is for some kids, anyways. But like, when you go back as an adult, especially after military service, you're like, if if you're if you if that's what you want to do and you're really like striving for it, like I did, like I wanted to be in school, you know. Yeah. It's so easy. It's so easy. It really I is. Just, like, I just just bombed it man i was getting a's straight through but by the end i was just like yeah the stakes are pretty low i ended up getting my first d in japanese because i didn't <laughs> care i was already in grad school <laughs> as soon as i got into grad school my japanese classes way yeah yeah well that's well, actually a good point both luke and i did college before we joined the military and, uh, and yeah. our underperformance in college i think played a significant role in our decisions to yeah, join the military. that's a nice way of putting it yeah, yeah shit show yeah well, complete yeah. shit show and that's another shared experience is our <laughs> college gpa <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof <laughs> or lack thereof that's that's a lot to say about mindset though right like if you're mm-hmm. if you want to be there then you'll be there if you want to like and it's really not that hard if you think about it all you have to do is study the books and understand the what they're trying to teach you right like it's if if you just take all of your time even as a student as a, like a 17 or 15 year old in high school or junior high school like if you just apply yourself to it, yeah, you'll learn it. It's <laughs> it's not that hard. Well, I mean, uh, that's always been my thing, is, is especially with with undergrad and even like in a master's degree. And in a master's degree here in the U.S., like you you teach a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. You teach undergrad classes, so show up. And now, granted, there's different areas. So if you're like in physics or something, maybe it's different. But in the humanities, it was show up, do the work, show progress. Even just an inkling of progress, you're gonna get an A. Like yeah, it's, it's it's easy. It really is. But you have yeah. to show up to class and do the work. Yeah. yeah. Well, that yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I mean, like the modicum, the the lowest amount of effort you could put in in a military class far exceeds what you need, what's required in a civilian classroom, right? Like you in the it, Canadian military. Yeah, <laughs> could be. Yeah, could be. We like we have. I don't know. When I was an instructor, man, I I talk about stuff like explosive theory. And then just to, we were going to go on the grenade range. So I had a class on explosive theory before we took all the recruits onto the grenade range. And you would think, you would think that talking about how explosives work before going to throw an explosive would keep your attention somehow. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't do it right, you will die. It, it, <laughs> it would keep mine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's a little bit challenging sometimes for military people to, follow but i mean they're also stressed and they're tired and there's all these other things happening right and it's hard sometimes to it's focus. really hard to learn in that environment yeah like yeah. when i think about basic training or even like warrant officer candidate school or yeah. even flight school when you're working really long days and you are stressed about graduating you're stressed yeah. about your next pt test or mm-hmm. especially in basic training when every aspect of your life is controlled the mm-hmm. one moment where you're not being yelled at is you're sitting in a classroom yeah 
attention. Like you're just like all you're doing, you're trying to just enjoy not being yelled at. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. really hard trying to retain information. Try not to fall asleep. <laughs> with 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 all of that stress, right? You and that type of r- the the difficulty it is to do that. Showing up at a civilian school mm-hmm. at like nine, right? <laughs> <laughs> walking there on your own time sitting down wherever you want to mm-hmm. being well rested yep having studied totally the information <laughs> like, <laughs> the, it, it's not even an issue you should just be able to show up and be like cool man i'm happy yeah. like let's just let's roll but the difference well, is, is you have was... to get yourself out of bed Joel yeah, get, there like that's the difficult thing in life okay yeah okay yeah. Yeah, yeah what were you gonna say Kurt? well i was gonna say the the thing that helped me succeed i think in, in college after the military was that before the military I didn't understand the system I didn't understand the game yeah mm-hmm. the military taught me the game because military teaches you you know task definition and standards you know what that you know at any task that you do in the military you know what you're going to be graded on yep. to be considered proficient like they always publish the standards yeah uh, when I went through flight school every time I took a you know a flight evaluation I knew to what standard I had to perform each maneuver in order to pass the maneuver. Yep. So for me, flight school, which was incredibly difficult for a lot of people, just clicked because A, I was passionate about it, but B, I understood the game. Yep. I understood what I had to do to finish. So when I got to college on the outside, I understood the purpose of a syllabus finally. I yep. understood the purpose of the grading criteria. I could look at it and I could be like, hey, I can jerk off in these six categories because they're only worth 5% of my grade, yep. but these three things I need to pay a lot of attention to and as you go through the course, you can make decisions that make your life easier. Be like, hey, I could stress out about this discussion post, or I could just not do it yeah. and make my life just a little <laughs> bit less stressful because it's not going to change my grade. Yeah, and that, that was what clicked for me was understanding the standards for, for college coursework and knowing how to attack it. I think it also a benefit is it gives you a comparative scale, too. Yes. Because, you know, you think, oh, okay, I got a 9 o'clock class, which means I have to wake up at 7.30, brew my coffee, drive to campus park and walk to class and be there on time but you know when, when you're a lazy ass 18 year old kid <laughs> yeah that's head, really that's difficult a, that's a hard yeah. accomplishment yeah. to make that day yeah but when when you've had time in the military where it's like oh i don't have to be there at three o'clock for a range that starts at 11 o'clock in the morning you know and or it's it's the comparison is like oh the the mile i have to walk from my car to my classroom with 10 pounds of a backpack is nothing yeah. compared yeah. to what i had to hump through afghanistan right yeah um, so it gives you that comparative skill to understand the stresses that you experience when you're writing that final paper pale in comparison to the stresses of day three of a six day operation in Banjoy, right? Yeah. If you were fortunate enough to have experienced the kind of experiences that we had in terms of combat and that kind of thing. Yeah. And even just regular military service without the combat is going to give you that comparative skill. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the real trick is figuring out that you can use that experience. And yep. a lot of times, like I talk to boys uh, out now and they're, the biggest difficulty they have is like, I don't know how to take, <clears throat> I love shooting a machine gun and turning that into a resumeable, like I don't, I, that's not a skill set that they c- think they can use mm-hmm. every day. But when you take it, think about it and you're like, okay, well, as a really good machine gunner, if you break it down, those are really useful skills. You have very good attention to detail because you have to be able to strip and clean and maintain that thing for readiness, which takes a lot of really high attention to detail you have to have a really good sense of situational awareness where your where your guys are versus where their guys are you have to be able to target fixate this is where i'm putting my rounds down range i need a good beat and so like you can break that down and say in real life okay attention to detail helps the ability to understand what's around me 
that is a skill that helps. The, like, and you just have to break that down again. And go, I've been taught how to do this. <laughs> like, well, I mean, even what Luke mentioned, you know, you're talking about backwards planning. Yep. You know, normal people don't look at time like that. That is a yeah. very military way to look at time. They say, yep. hey, I have to be somewhere at seven, and then going backwards to the point of like, oh, I have to wake up by this point. Yep. So as a machine gun, and even as a machine gun, you're like, hey, okay, I'm going on this mission. I need to carry this much ammo. I can't carry that much. I have an AG. He's going to carry this. He's going to carry one barrel. I'm going to carry another. Yep. The ability to, to work as part of a team or as a large organization uh, is, is an under-marketed skill for military members. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not about pulling the trigger on a machine gun or knowing how to take it apart or put it together or or whatever it's all the thought processes that you mentioned that go into that it. go that go into it yeah you know and if you're a machine gunner is like well how do i employ this weapon yes you mm-hmm. know it's not just the pulling the trigger there is doctrine and theory behind using a machine gun you know, yeah. there's doctrine and theory behind using an m4 too it's yep. just a little bit more you know ape c bad guy ape pull trigger yeah, but, but I mean, yeah. like the you can look at a skill set that you have, and instead of just looking at like I'm good at me being a machine gunner, as you just said, backwards planning, you can take that one skill and break it apart, right? Mm-hmm. The usually machine gunners are, you know, well I guess here we do it the same way. Like if you take a C6, <laughs> which is like a 240 Bravo for you guys, mm-hmm. uh, it's usually the biggest dude carrying it. Right, regardless of his, <laughs> maybe in the Canadian military. Yeah, okay. Well, in Canadian, it's usually the biggest I'm, guy. I'm carrying. beginning to see from our conversations. I think the Canadian military is a little bit more squared away. A little bit. Yeah. We, we, so. we give it to the newest guy, regardless of his size, oh, and they make fun yeah. of him. We don't want to keep up here. The 110 pound kid that's like, you know, five foot six, carry this 40 pound machine gun. Oh wow! No, we don't do that at all. We we try to at least. From my experiences, in we try to make sure that the people that have the machine guns are the people that should have the machine guns because we also like we got taught very early at least i did uh as a c9 gunner i was or a saw gunner for you guys um i make up 40 percent of the firepower of a section me alone Mm -hmm. and that's like if shit goes down everyone's going to depend on you as the machine gunner to make sure that you either have suppressive fire or it, it enables us to move right and so that's always like, yeah, if it's C6, he's going to be the guy that knows how to use it the best. He's going to be the biggest dude because so he can hump it and move it and utilize it mm-hmm. effectively. Um, and there's another but, skill yeah. that you can break down, right? Is yeah. I, I, can, I can reallocate myself across a, a wide range of multiple people, multiple yep. stressful situations to apply my skill set to what needs to be addressed in that particular circumstance. So there's yes. another... There's another skill that you can translate over to the real, Absolutely. The real world, you know. Well, and this is this is what I wanted to, you know, get into with you guys was you you guys created a, a podcast about your own personal history, and and the skill sets that you've been able to garner from that. Because I've listened to all the all your guys' episodes so far, and a lot of the conversations they talk about <clears throat> the operations and what it felt like and how you were able to. Uh, overcome those certain experiences in your life but then you also talk about how you apply them throughout your life mm-hmm. right and that's that's a really important skill set to be able to have because most dudes when you go through a really traumatic experience you don't want to talk about that <laughs> you don't want to gel- delve into it you also don't want to share it with the world <laughs> right and uh what there's that old uh that old movie trope where they talk to the old veteran and he's just like, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Like, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I get it. Right. Yeah. 
why do you think, especially with the podcast, why do you think it's so important to dive into it? Well, what we we didn't think it was at first. Okay. Um, so a little background. You know, we, we, we started the Panjoy podcast because we were short on information. We want to write a book. And we didn't have the information that we needed. So the initial idea is we're just going to interview people, fill in our gaps. Yeah. And what we realized is there was a there was an incredible urge within the community, not only ours, you know, from our unit, but everyone that served in the area to tell their stories. Yeah. Um, and you know, the approach to mental health has changed so much in the last ten years. Whereas ten years ago it was like if you talk about it, you're going to go to BH, and you go to BH, then your behavioral health, and then you're going to be out, and your yep. career is going to be over. Yep. Um, but it's kind of starting with when we got back from Afghanistan. It, there was a little bit of a shift. They're like, hey you should talk about it you know proper you know facilities and resources going to be provided so you can talk about it so we had this interesting opportunity where people were willing and eager to talk about their experiences on a human level which is what we wanted all along which was to write this book about the human experience of combat in panjway yeah so you know i don't know it's <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question really at all, but for, for us, it was initially not that, but it became this, we, we, we allowed people to go down that path because people were really willing to. And we had yeah. several people come on the show that had not talked about what happened to them in Panjway mm-hmm. prior to coming back and doing it on the podcast. I mean, yeah. I think, I think uh, you know, I'm, I might actually be a good case study for this because True. Um, before we started the podcast, and you know, Chance, you've listened to the the show, so you've heard me say this multiple times. But mm-hmm. for your listeners, I never talked about my military service. Like I wasn't the dude with the sticker on his truck or with the multicam hat in college class or whatever. Like, and that's cool if you are fine, be proud of it. But I was, I would, I never talked about it. And as a matter of fact, I, I completely neglected it or didn't neglect. It, I shelved it, and mm-hmm. I would go whole semesters and with classmates, and they never even knew I was a veteran. You mm-hmm. know. Because I didn't want to be defined by the veteran stereotype, by the things people associate with certain veterans. Um, and so the kind of negative aspect of that, as I learned on the course of doing this podcast, I actually suppressed a lot of the, the, the memories, a lot mm-hmm. of the emotions and things like that. And even doing the podcast, it was like Friday night. Being, you know, Curtis called me and I was a couple beers in. He's like, hey, man, we should record these episodes let's do a podcast and i was like yeah sure sounds good <laughs> monday morning i'm getting microphones in the mail and we're getting yeah. signed up for services like okay i guess we're doing like this it, thing it's happening you know? yeah yeah and um but ultimately it's proven to be really really good because not only do people want to come and tell their stories but it's given us a platform to kind of like provide a unifying perspective mm-hmm. on things that guys are probably holding really deep down inside or not even telling, like, I don't, my immediate family even, like my parents and my siblings have not heard these stories until they listen to the podcast. Yeah. Because not only did I not really want to tell them, I wasn't going to. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to have that be a part of the perspective that they had on me. Yeah. But creating that space where guys who have that shared experience can come together and connect over those shared experiences, it's so much easier to talk about it in company of those who are there with you. But having it recorded and out there for the world, as you said, is a good way to present it to people without it being so faceted to your identity, uh, your individuality, your identity as a person, you know? Yeah. Because it's not a personal interaction, right? Like you're, we're we're separated from Mm -hmm. the, from the listeners, right? So like they can listen to it and they get, if they don't know you, they get a small snippet of your life. Yes. 
right? Versus you as a person, as yep. a veteran. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Sorry, I cut you off, yeah. Curtis. What were you going to say? Well, all I was going to say was what we also realize is that the specific, the specifics of stories don't really matter mm-hmm. because there's unifying themes within all of the stories that everybody who served in Panjway and probably everyone who served in combat can relate to. Mm-hmm. You're talking about, you know, grit and fear and courage and bravery, um, you know, the mental strain, there's you know, the IED fight, you know, what it's like to be in a firefight. Like, all these experiences are common to everyone who served, especially in Panjway, but, you know, theater-wide. And for someone to, to tune in and they're like, oh, I can relate to that. Yeah. Or especially if they're a Panjway veteran, I can specifically relate to what it's like to walk in and out of a grape row or what it's like to use a mind detector or what it's yeah. like to see, see somebody get blown up. And they, la- and they it's really powerful for people even if they never get a chance to come on the podcast themselves to be able to latch on and attach to that experience and feel like they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. You know, my, uh, my granddad, he served in world war two as a combat engineer as well. And he never talked about the war. Mm-hmm. Never. And like, I knew that he would, he served in the war as an engineer. That was it. That's all I knew. And I didn't even know what that meant until I was, you know, in my late teens when I could actually look it up and go, Oh, Oh, that's what it was. Um, but for 70 plus years, not one, he, their random little stories would pop out when he was talking with somebody else. Right. That was all of, that was what I learned from my mom living. That was when she grew up. <clears throat> and, uh, when I come, when I came back from Afghanistan, I sat down beside him one day and I just like, I had just gotten back. I sat down, he looked at me, and he gave me like a little nod, like a, yep. <laughs> and I gave him a little nod, yeah. and like we finally saw each other as warriors, right? Like we both knew exactly what we've been through. And yeah. It, well, your, like, your, your grandfather became your peer. Yeah, exactly. Became your equal. And that's, yeah. a, that's a really unique yes. relationship. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we didn't have very long as peers, right, as equals to, to talk yeah. about it. But I realized in that moment, I was like, he has been waiting for a peer to talk to yeah. for 76 years, like mm-hmm. just, and never, never talked about it. And I was like, I'm not going to be that person. Yeah. I, I can't do that. And that, you know, that helped me start the podcast. That helped me start talking about my own issues because fuck that. And that's an area where our generation of veterans are very fortunate. Because yes. we're we're returning to a cultural zeitgeist that not only people want to hear it, like yeah. they're curious and they they kind of want to have an understanding, but we have access to this vast range of media and everything to to find the spaces to express that. Yeah. Be it in a blog post, be it in a book, be it on podcast or whatever. Um, we also have a kind of like a recept- more receptive audience versus the World War Two. You know, those guys come back. Everything they saw was so horrendous. Yeah. And then I feel like the national mentality was like, pick up, move on, yeah. get to the next thing, work hard, you know, push into the job. And it's mm-hmm. like, pave it all over, pretend like it was normal, which probably yep. led to, you know, a generation of alcoholics and white beaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then their kids went to Vietnam. Yeah. And nobody, and when they came back, nobody, not only did they want, not want to hear it, but they were ostracized and demonized yeah. for actions yeah. beyond their control. Yeah, and because so, it not only that, it also rem- it reminded that generation of what their parents did. Yeah. Right. So yeah. they grew up in that, like, straight up. Those guys came back with PTSD. 
almost across the board. There are some really high efficient or high, uh, what's the word for it? They like high functioning. There we go. Thank you. Uh, there were lots of high functioning guys, but if you were over there and you saw that shit, man, that changes you. Yeah. Period. And, uh, so yeah, you have an entire generation who grew up with parents who were not a hundred percent there and no one talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> and then so yeah. like they watch their kids go or they go and they come back and then just remind some of their parents and that like it just you have an entire psychological like grinder at that point just trying to figure <laughs> out how to do shit. Well, I mean, even up until, you know, the, the latter recently. portion of the yeah. war on terror. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't have a veteran suicide epidemic for no reason. Yeah. You know, people mm-hmm. saw and did terrible shit. And they up until the last, like I said, eight to ten years, it has been highly discouraged to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. And that it's taken a long time to shift the culture. Uh, you know, maybe people are talking too much about it at some point. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, it took a long time to get veterans to come around. And it's OK to talk about your experiences yeah. and it don't have to tell your family, you know, there's mental health. You know, VA, th- there was a statistic that came out on our podcast that still blows me away. And it was that, um, and Luke, correct me if, if I m- mess this up, but hmm. the, the the highest, the biggest employer of social workers in the United States is the Department of Veteran Affairs. Yeah. It was some, and it was a crazy percentage. It was like it was 70% crazy. or something, yeah. uh, something crazy like that. Yeah. The high, but the, the largest employer of social workers in the, in the United States is the Department of Veteran Affairs. Makes sense. So the, the, the systems are in place, and finally veterans are coming around to using them. Um, I had I had to convince myself that mm-hmm. I had to use it while I was still in, and it ended my career. But I had to do it because if I didn't go and I didn't fix what was wrong, I was a liability to every single person that got into the aircraft with me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Five ten years ago, I would not have had the maturity to make that decision. Yeah, and you may not have had the the framework around you to absorb that decision either. Yeah. Or even if I had the maturity and the framework, I would have been terrified of making it. Yeah. Because I mean, like, if I do this, I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be an outcast. I'm mm-hmm. going to be treated like shit. And none of that happened. Everyone's like, totally got it. We totally understand. Mm-hmm. This is a normal mm-hmm. thing. And when it came down to the, the point of not being able to fly ever again, you know, that sucked. But it was something that I, I, I was able to make peace with because I w- didn't have all these other exterior stressors telling me that I was a piece of shit. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, could, I could reason with that decision on my own. That makes perfect sense because, like, when I, when I left my, the, the engineer regiment <clears throat> and I went to Meaford as an instructor, all the issues that I was having that at the time I was blaming on the regiment, right? Like I was like, that's horrible leadership and these guys are just fucking with me and blah, blah, blah. And, like, I would wake up and dread going into work every day right like you just i i did not want to be there and it was horrible and blah 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 and so when i left for me for it i thought oh sweet new place new people the only two people i know here are already my friends i was overseas with them it's all good this is going to be a great posting but all of those problems just kept coming <laughs> like i got there and i still couldn't sleep and i didn't want to hang out with people and like, and, 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 mm-hmm. and. And then finally, I was talking to my wife, and she was like, uh, I said, you know, I'm still having trouble sleeping here. And she's like, well, maybe you should go see somebody about it. Like, maybe it's just a sleep issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think I was, like, getting maybe four hours a night. 
maybe. That's rough. And like a broken sleep where I'd be down for a bit and then up for a bit. It was bad. Um, but then I went in. And I was just like, yeah, hey, I'm here to talk to somebody about my sleep. I'm not really sleeping through the night. And they're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, come talk. We'll yeah. work it out and blah, blah, blah. Here's your next appointment and so on and so forth. And then uh, I, I remember leaving that appointment and the guy was like, uh, the guy I was talking to was like, you know, I just want to let you know that I really applaud your bravery. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And he's like, well, it takes a lot to come in and actually talk to somebody. Hmm. And I was like, I just thought it was like a sleep problem, man. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, yeah, a little bit later on, I got diagnosed PTSD and depression and all these other things while I was still in and working. And it's contagious. Yeah. And I'll take the opportunity to share an experience that happened after after I did all that I did. Yeah. When I went in and I did what I did, I had one of my best friends that I flew with, and I'll keep his name anonymous and everything because he's still in. Um, he had had several of the similar experiences that I had previous deployment to Afghanistan. It's all terrible stuff, you know. But one of the best attack helicopter pilots in the army, just an absolute killer. Mm-hmm. And you know, we flew together a lot and we worked together a lot. And when I went down. I brought myself down because I was having issues relating to a helicopter crash that I'd had. I, my first flight back up after six months of being grounded was with him. Right. And we were flying around, we were flying around, and we were talking. He's like, I've been having issues too, this, this, and this. And he was clearly distracted, and he was having issues as well on that flight. Yeah. And when we, we terminated the flight early because he was just not in the right headspace, and then he he did the same thing. He brought himself down. Yeah. But the difference was he did that, A, because he knew that he wouldn't be ostracized. He knew he wouldn't be demonized. He knew that it would be okay, that the command was going to support him because he just watched it all happen to me. Yep. And then he went a different path, and he was able to, to get back up. And he is still flying attack helicopters awesome. in the United States Army, and it has not hindered his career whatsoever. In fact, he made – he got it, you know, moved on to an – awesome job yeah that you know a lot of people would tell you that if you would self-grounded yourself for post-traumatic stress you would never get that job yeah and he's there and so just to anybody that's listening that's still active duty in either of the forces you know it's not going to end your career if you do it right if you self-report and you go and you get help and you tell them i still want to do this job i still want to fight for it it wasn't easy he had to go through, you know, months and months and months of evaluations and waivers and all kinds of stuff. But he's yep. back 100% as if it never happened. And he's happier, healthier, healthier and safer. Yeah. And it's it's just putting the work in, right? Like you have to be willing to put the work yes. in. And you have to work on it. That's the hardest part. You work on yourself, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's not fun. Um, and you're absolutely right. in like if you step forward, it's the same thing with like alcohol, too. So if I, if I was to walk into my CEO's office and be like, I'm having a drinking problem, they'd be like, Roger that. We'll set you up with a detox program and we'll send you off and like that. In that's how it works in the Canadian Army. If you actually come in and say, Hey, this is what's gonna, this is what's happening, they'll be like, Cool, no problem. You'll go over there. You'll push that way, blah blah. blah. And everybody around you goes like, Man, fucking solid. Good on him. Yep. Like, good job. And yep. now. Like when I was when I was in at the beginning of '06, it was still very much like you don't talk to you don't mm-hmm. talk to people, right? No, that doesn't happen. And by the time I got out in '13 or '14, it like didn't matter if you need to talk to somebody, go talk to somebody. It yeah. was that easy. 
And uh, I really think it comes from the experience, right? You have people who you watch them fail. You watch the the alcoholic crash his car or get a DUI or something like that, and then it fucks his career completely. You're toast, right? Yeah. Or someone who has a PTSD episode and attempts suicide, your career is done, right? Regardless. Yeah. Um, or... <clears throat> has a or uh, has a lash out at his wife or something like that again like these these are career enders when you break but if you come ahead come forward ahead of time and you say hey man i'm having an issue cool man doctor over there sort yourself out take the time right and but it it took years of us just destroying ourselves <laughs> yeah. and and then staying in long enough to go man you know what we should let these young guys well, and, and for better or worse, you can attribute that to the length of the war on terror. Yes. Yeah, that's you know, exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you look at even Vietnam, which before now was the longest running war, A, the participation in Vietnam, you know, it's, it, it was a slow build to a peak and then a build back down. But there's a there's a solid four or five years in the war on terror. We had two, three hundred thousand people engaged in yeah. the war on terror. It's huge numbers. A lot of people served. And we're now going on, oh, almost about to hit the 20-year mark. Yep. And, you know, it, it, it's common for the U.S., at least, when we finish a war, we forget about it. Yep. Like, we downsize the military. We're getting rid of all the people we don't need anyway, so we they're not our problem yeah. anymore. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to deal with the consequences of post-traumatic stress or, you know, depression or all the kind of things that come along with it because those people aren't even in the Army anymore. Yep. We, we did our war. We fought it. We're done. This was the first war that we've had to actually actively deal with the consequences of soldiers on multiple combat rotations yep. that are still in the forces and still might have to deploy again. Yeah. Because we've sent two generations of men and women to war. Yeah. yeah. You know, even yeah. even our allies, like the Canadians, for example, the British, they sent two generations of men and women to war. And mm -hmm. unlike previous wars, where you come back, it was one generation that bore the brunt yeah. and they could bury it. Because imagine, let's just theoretically imagine that GWAT ended in 2001 or sorry 2011 yeah you know the conversation would not be the same no so you know we're, we're fortunate in that because of the time and the impact that it's had it's it's disseminated its way down to the national narrative the national conscious and um, because of that we're being greeted with a space where people are willing to not only hear it but they they, they want to encourage it yeah but it's also kind of coalescing with this rise in coalescing not a word yeah what is it that's, that's, a, that's a second beer word <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll call this a fourth beer word cool but yeah oh, um, it made sense to me <laughs> on the topic of alcohol no. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was about to say was it a coincidence that as soon as i had a beer in my mouth he's like yeah if you're an alcoholic oh, <laughs> oh dang <laughs> yeah but yeah you know we're as a nation at least in the u.s and even in the in a lot of western countries and Canada, I imagine it's probably similar. There's a general shift in the national narrative towards being receptive, pr almost probably almost to a fault. Truth be told, almost to a fault. Yeah. Um, of willing to talk about mental health and yep. you know well, the really pendulum swings. Point. You know the pendulum swings in that it one does. side. It's like yeah. repress, never talk about it, don't say a thing. The pendulum swinging now towards like everybody has a problem and yeah. instead of it. Yes, and one of the one of the big faults that veteran culture in the U.S. has is that now that problem instead of being a problem that you fix, like the 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 analogy is, if you break your arm, you go to the doc and you get it fixed. If you break your brain, 
you go to the dock and get fixed. Mm-hmm. But now the pendulum is swinging so where you're broken. Yeah. But instead of it being a problem that you need to solve and surmount, you're being set up on a pedestal as a unique specimen of the product of your times. Yes. And so the negative effect of that is going to, instead of recognizing somebody has an issue, they're going to be recognized and then promoted and self and their self aggrandizement is going to be directly linked to the issue that they have. So instead of being like, I think I've got PTSD, I need to go to the dogs and fix it. It's like, I've got PTSD cause I'm a combat veteran. Yeah. No shit. There I was. And I don't fuck with me, man. Or, oh, you know, I've seen some shit yeah. and it's like, dude, no, it's true. you gotta it's be true. cool about it. You yeah. gotta be willing to na- navigate as a problem and not an identity. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Not, yeah. Well, that's the difference between like war porn versus war stories, right? Like yeah. when I when I first got out and people were like, you know, what was the army like? And you're like, I don't know. It was like a job. Like <laughs> you don't yeah. really see it as anything special. And then <clears throat> people would, you know, the average citizen when they hear you've been to Afghanistan, especially here in Canada, it was like because it was it was the national story for the entire time we were there. And it actually, there's a one point I was listening to the radio and one of the people was like, uh, you know, we've, we've lost so many people now in Afghanistan that I'm just starting to get um, numb to it. Mm. And I got really upset and I was just like, you son of a, like, how dare you, right? These are yeah. all personal fucking, and blah. Yeah. but I realized that it had been in the news so long that uh, it became normal. To, lo- to hear about losses on the news, right? Mm-hmm. And as you said, the, the, the culture shifted to um, our boys are in combat, people are dying, okay, now they're coming home, okay, they're broken, now we need to, like, oh, we have to help them, oh, we have to do everything for them, and then you get people who will walk around doing that, you know, chest puffed out, and I'm a fucking combat veteran, fucking, you better listen to me because I'm a combat veteran. And it's like, well, that guy was an idiot. We call those vet bros. Vet bros, exactly. Yeah, vet bros. Yeah, and fuck vet bros. (laughs) (laughs) But that's—is this an F-word podcast? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck yes, actually. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the uh, that that concept though, right, of like changing from war porn to war stories, Mm -hmm. where when I was first out, people would ask me like, "Did you kill anybody?" Right, and be like, "Why? Like, what do you like? What do you want to know?" But that's what people wanted to hear initially, right? Because it was new and like, oh my God, there's people and they're fighting and so on and so forth. And then it slowly got to the point where, okay, you know what? Let's just, you know, let's hear about the funny stories. Let's hear about the good times because mm-hmm. the people that wanted to talk shit, they would talk shit versus. So I've got a couple anecdotes for you on that. Give her, <laughs> man. Oh, man. One. Fourth, fourth beer anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we're getting into it now. Um. So uh, the other day I saw a CIB on a truck. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, and it was literally across the entire back windshield. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And combat infantry. It's combat <laughs> infantry badge. And oh, when yeah. I saw that, when I see shit like that, and maybe, once again, it's a comparative scale. Mm-hmm. First thing I think in regards to war porn, it's like, oh, that guy has been in like two firefights. <laughs> you know, it's like he went to, he went to Afghanistan and he took one walk around somewhere in Kandahar or up in the mountains, and and his PSD convoy got an RPG shot at it, and now he's fucking walking around with that yeah. on his chest. CRB, oh yeah, yeah. And so I think you know, there's this like me culture 
this like look at me look how special i am look at what i did because it's different than what you've done mm-hmm. and you know literally wearing it on the sleeve like that to me it indicates insecurity but it also indicates someone who who probably didn't see shit so they're going around smearing their war porn everywhere but they don't have any actual war stories mm-hmm. and a good yeah. example of that in the second anecdote is when i was in my master's degree i had a marine veteran in my class <laughs> And this dude was a Marine to the T. He still yep. had the freaking jar-haired haircut, and he was all jacked up, and he had his, like all of his crap. And so it was about halfway through the semester. I was his teaching. I was his TA, so I was I, I taught a little bit in that class. And it's like, hey, dude. Uh, it's like, you know, where, what'd you do in the Marines? It's like, oh, I was a whatever the 240 machine gunner OS is or whatever. Yeah, the yeah. Version of that. I was like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, did you ever deploy? Or he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I deployed, I deployed. And this guy was always full of, full of stories. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, where'd you go? He's like, oh, I went to Saudi Arabia. Aw, <laughs> oh, bro. Uh, and so I was like, oh, that, that's cool, man. You know, like, you know, did you see anything interesting? I was I was telling him to be a piece of shit, honestly. Yeah. I was definitely yeah. leading him on. And um, anyway, his point is, this guy was always war porn in it. Veterans yeah. Day rolls around. It's about three weeks out from the end of class. Oh, no. And I, and I showed up, and my, my, my one tradition that I let myself do is I have a little tiny CIB lapel pin that I wear on the jacket and I wear on veterans day and on like graduations and stuff, because that's what, that's what got me through school. You know, that's what laid the foundation for me to succeed in school. So that was my way of paying respect and homage to that. So I just walked into class and I had that little tiny CIB pin on and this dude was like, Oh, he knew he he had fucked up. You know, but hell that's, that's bullshit. Everybody in the class. Yeah. So there's there's two things that I've always noticed about when you talk about war stories. One, uh, the more they tell, the less authentic. Yeah. So if it is extremely detailed and they tell all kinds of stories, most likely – now, there's some people that are storytellers, and that's fine. Like, And sometimes they have great stories. But most of the time, the more you tell, you know, the, the, the less honest it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is the, the detail, the level of detail, like warriors don't tell story about gore or about like, unless they're within their, their core friends. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Oh, I remember that time that guy's head got blown off. Yeah. You, you tell that story to like three people, like when you're about seven, seven beers, beers deep, deep. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't tell it in the classroom. You don't tell yeah. it at the cafeteria at school. And if you are, you never saw it because there's yeah. no way that you would ever feel like that was the appropriate venue to tell that story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are always the two red flags to me. And that would be the difference to me between a war porn and war stories is when you talk about gore or shock factor, or, you know, you're trying to impress somebody. It's like, Oh yeah, there was age 64. Just blowing people away. It's cool. <laughs> no bigs. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm guilty, I guess. Oh. No, no, but they're, but, they're, they're, yeah. you're right, though. Like, when you're surrounded by your brothers and you're surrounded by the guys that have been there that have chewed the same dirt, that mm-hmm. know what it was like, then, yeah, the stories get more in detail because y- you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. if I'm talking to a civilian or somebody who wasn't there and we talk about the dust, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't know. And as much as I can say oh you know it's like talcum powder and they're like yeah. what but how the average person can't take talcum powder and put it on the ground put it on everything yeah. right like that <laughs> just the uh but for you and i when i say the dust you know 
what the dust is, right? Yeah, like, exactly it's, it's a sense of connection for us. Yeah, mm-hmm. like we we can understand. It's a it's a mutually understood term. It's a mutu- feeling expression. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to tell a story, a, a bullshit story to civilians and trying to get them to, you know, agree with you or think you're cool, you have to relate it to something that they that they, they can relate to. Exactly, which a movie or yeah. a TV show or a book or something that's just mm-hmm. shock factor. Yeah. So you have you have to make the story something that it's not in order to connect with civilians. Yeah. Uh, or you just don't tell the story at all. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I would always when people would ask me what would Afghanistan was like, I would say it was hot, and they were like, <laughs> that's good they're like, what do, you, what do you mean, right? And, but anybody that's been there, they're like, oh, yeah, it was so fucking hot, right? Like everybody yeah. knows how hot it was there. Uh, and then even when I say, you know, I have a picture on my phone of it was fifty nine point four degrees Celsius outside, which is oh, I geez. think like a hundred and twenty, hundred twenty five, yeah, something like that. Like it's yeah. It was fucking, and that's not even the hottest day we had there. That was just the one I happened to see on a thermometer, right? <laughs> right. Uh, or when a Fufac would tell me that we were sitting in the shade, and he'd be like, "Man, did you know it's fifty-five degrees in the shade right now?" And you're like, "Fuck you, man! Like, <laughs> don't tell <laughs> yeah. me that shit." <laughs> I, I thought I felt comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was actually comfortable a second ago, but the again, the average person doesn't know that. And I think well, then this when is, you tell them that you were in Panjway. And not only was it that hot, but it was that humid. Oh, God, it was, man. It was green everywhere. That, and that's what really throws people off when you talk about Afghanistan. Yes. Or talk about Panjway because mm. they think deserts and they think the Korangal. They think mountains and yep. snow-capped Iraq, peaks. Where it's or Iraq, where it's, Right. Mm. Or, or the Registan Desert. Yeah. But mm. they, what they don't expect is like, yeah, yeah, we're wading through canals. We're jumping up through orchards. And we're mm-hmm. walking through grape rows. And we're running through, like... Marijuana fields are like in Afghanistan. Yeah, yes, in Afghanistan. Yeah, and then when they're like a field of marijuana, and they're like, really, like a field, and they're like, yeah, like a one hundred meter by four hundred meter square field, an acre of of marijuana, just pot, (laughs) and like nine ten foot stalks, like Mm -hmm. no problem. Yet they're like the size of your fist. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like I have, uh, I showed you guys that picture the other day of my lav and me just in that Mm -hmm. field. We drove into that field. The lab disappeared. The only thing that was up was the RWS, the machine gun on top. That yeah. was it. And I was like, this is the best camouflage I think Canada's ever had right now. Yeah. <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a similar picture. I'll have to dig it out of a Matt yeah. V doing the same thing. Nice. The difference is Matt Vs are a lot taller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even 10 feet coming up on a Matt V, it's still just brushing the windows at the top. Yes. And you know, this, this is what, you know, talking with people who have been there, it brings back the, the good old days, right? Like the, yeah. the, these were the best times and they were hilarious and it I'm sure you hear this all the time as well as I do. You know, I, I miss being being back there. I miss being there back there with the boys. And then we always have one here in Canada where, like, if somebody asked you to go back there, would you go? And pretty much everybody's like, yeah, absolutely, 100%, no problem. Like, in a heartbeat. <laughs> Until you realize where you're actually going to go. Because what yeah. they're remembering, right, is when Good I was stuff. there. Remembering squeezing the trigger on the goo stuff. Yeah, exactly. Or the, or the adrenaline of a firefight, or exactly. People like being able to do their jobs. Yes. Like I deployed, I actually did what I was supposed to do, and that's what I did every day, and no one was bugging me to do something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yep. what what we've come across with the podcast is there are people that have said that, but we almost always are able to talk them out of it when we make them realize you don't want to go back. Yeah. You want to go back at the same time, the same place, with the same people, and have the exact same experience again, where you came back with all fingers and toes intact. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because the yep. people that got their legs blown off don't wish that they could go back. Yeah. Well, definitely. okay, some of them do. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe <laughs> like a second beforehand. Just one yeah, second up, before. Up to that point. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, they, some of them, some of them, that wasn't even the worst thing that happened to them on that deployment was yeah. losing their legs. Yep. Yeah. You know, it, but for the most part, it's I want to go back to the same place, at the same time, with the same people. But people omit from their memory things like blacking filling out a hole with concrete or blacking out with the heat or yeah. you know going on stupid patrols. Yeah. yeah. Bending over at your waist and have sweat pour in a continuous stream off your nose, <sighs> dripping. Man. I, I, I let my, when I first got there, we didn't have any laundry facilities. So we, uh, in Massengar at least. So Ooh, we were hand washing all our stuff, right? We had like mm. the old friggin' board so that we were like hand washing <laughs> our stuff and it was hilarious. But and one day I came back from a, a patrol and I took my tunic shirt off. So we have the t-shirt, right? And then you have a tunic shirt on top. Anyway, we took, I took that off and I just stood it out in the sun mm-hmm. and it hardened standing with that much sweat and I was just sweat. like that is Bad, disgusting man. that's why people think like, <laughs> so I got one word for you people say that they want to go back I've got one word for you that'll make you not want to go back shoulders <laughs> think about how much your shoulders burned man oh, think about that oh, feeling yeah, of yeah. the plate carrier the rug yeah, just that the right here digging right it there. Oh. In the center of your back, right between your shoulder blades, yep. right behind yep, you. Right there. Let's make right my back there. hurt right now. Just thinking about it. Yeah, it's like shoulders. Not you come back. You take your though. you take your kid off, and there's a freaking like bruise. Yep. Where all that weight's mm-hmm. secured on your shoulders. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to go back to that. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I do know. Maybe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there's there's there are contingencies in which I would go back, but yeah. Um, all of them involve Apache helicopter support. But <laughs> it's a good way to do it. That's pretty much the only way to do it, really. Uh, Apaches and t-shirts. Yeah, Apaches that's, that's and t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. That Apache, you know. Oh, a t-shirt in an Apache. Ooh. <laughs> or maybe like the muscle shirt with just like uh, with an Apache on it while flying no. the Apache. No. Ooh. Okay. Now you got <laughs> it. Like that's pretty sweet, right? Anyway, the but yeah. Uh, I mean, but people people miss the exact experience because there were a lot of positives about the experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lots the adrenaline rush was fun, and the camaraderie that you develop with people that were you were fighting Nick ne- uh, next to every single day, you can't replace it. Yeah. And a good but firefight. A good, a good firefight. Yeah, nobody gets hurt. Yeah. And no like, one gets you hurt. you find out, like you hear later on, you fucked up a couple of Taliban. Like, that's yeah, a good like, day. Fuck race, you know, man. Yeah, exactly. That's a good yeah. firefight. That's yeah. a good day. Yeah. The Now, all, all things being equal, if I could go back to Afghanistan and fly the Apache, 100%. Yeah, if I could fly an Apache back that, there, I'd that, be all that, over that, that too. Is, <laughs> that is a different that is a different experience. That I that I do look back fondly on cuz yeah. that was the most fun 8 months of my life yeah. being deployed as Apache pilot. But as a grunt, yeah. you could not pay me to go back and walk around Spurwangar again. That's no. a that's a tough one, man, cuz like well, I guess for us it's a little different too cuz like we this was a generational aspect for the Canadian military, right? Like we we all got, we all went there doing exactly what we were going to get into, and we all went there and we did it, and we all came back going, "Yep, that was that was basically what I expected it to be." <laughs> you know, check, check that box. Check that box. It's yeah, done. Yeah, and then, uh, but you're you're absolutely right. I always say that what we miss is the way life was, the way life is supposed to be. Yes. Right. Like everybody knew their job, everybody knew their place. Everybody had a job. <laughs> Everybody was looking out for each other. There was, you know, there was some bitching and there was some moaning and there was some interpersonal rivalries and whatever, right? But for the standard, I could absolutely hate your guts. I could hate your guts. And on patrol, I would take around for you in a heartbeat, right? Yep. No question. And that's why I think people miss that, right? They want that feeling again of just being 
there. Well, I think yeah, people people don't miss the experience, but they they miss the the unduplicability of the experience. Yes. You know, Ooh, that's a it, five. That's a nice. Word. That is a five beer word. word. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. If it's uh, even a word, it may not be one. Hey, it you know be. what? I, he's got beer. I've got beer. You've got beer. It's a word to us. It's a word, it's a to, word. Us. It Call to us. Call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they miss the fact that you. And I think this is what happens: is that people, they, it's such an extreme experience, mm-hmm. and it, it exists in such an extreme for modern society, that they miss the, the fact that they'll never have that experience ever again. Nothing will ever rival what it's like to be yep. in a good long, duking it out firefight. You know, yep. and nothing will ever rival what it's like to just launch 40 Mike Mike or to squeeze the trigger on the goose. But you can't use that as the basis for the rest of the experiences that you do in life. Yes. You know, like no, nothing's going to compare to that. Things can be as good or better, actually. A lot of things better, can be better yeah. than that. It's just better or as good in a different way. Yeah. Or different. Just different. Or, or just different, yeah. which is yep. good, you know. But, uh, you know, that they miss the, the extreme nature of it because – real life doesn't afford you the opportunities most of the time to pursue those things. Yeah. Um, so it's like, I think that's it's like explosives. Too. So explosives, I always liken explosives to cocaine, right? Like you, it, and just hear me out on this one. You can snort both or no. <laughs> I mean, you could once you can smuggle both up your bed, <laughs> <laughs> but when you start, de- de- when you start working with explosives regularly, every charge has to be bigger than the last one. Right. Yeah. To try and experience sure. that, to to get that same feeling from your first block of C four, standing a sure. hundred meters away, and you're like, hey, that was awesome. I want to do more. Right. Like it right. just you you want bigger and bigger. And when you talk to most explosive guys, what they want to talk about is, so the biggest charge I ever did was, right. right? Like, it was always yeah. like, so I was setting up this massive charge, and it was it's always around how big that explosive is. Is it like fish stories? It gets bigger too, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, what was one block was actually five. Sure. Or sure. sorry, yeah. what was five? Uh, yeah. Reverse yeah. that. But anyway, yes, it's the uh, it's that that want to one up it, right? Like yeah. I want to be, I want something just slightly better than that. But it's not. It's that's not the way it is, right? It is. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. It was an experience in your life, and it was an. Uh, a an time early period. experience and it, yeah an early experience for a lot of people mm-hmm. and that you can use those tools you can use mm-hmm. the experience that you had forward but you will not have that experience again right, right. and i worked with my with my psychologist for years about this just mm-hmm. radical acceptance it happened mm-hmm. good and bad are subjective that experience happened to you it happened to no one else and that it is that's all it is. Yeah. Right. It so is can... it is a part of your narrative. It is not your narrative. Right. You know. So it's that's not the exactly only it. thing that makes you a person. Or if if it is the only thing that makes you an individual, you're probably pretty fucking boring to be around, you know. Cuz this has been well 10 years plus for you. We're getting yep. close to 10 years. If you're still sitting around at the BFW eating fried chicken and telling the same stories to the same old people, you're probably pretty fucking boring, man. Like go do something different. Learn a craft. Learn yep. a trade. Read a fucking book. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere different. So go somewhere you've never been before. And that's one thing we've talked about a lot on the show. And sometimes we go on this tangent, we actually edit, end up editing it out, so it doesn't get too distracting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, for almost everyone who went to Panjway, it was nine months of your life. Mm-hmm. Nine months out of thirty years. 
and it was a foundational experience. It was a critical experience. It was a learning experience. Like you probably learned more about yourself in those nine months than you did in the other 20 years, but it ended and you have to take what you can from it. You have to take your victories. You have to take your sorrows. You have to take your grief. You have to take your trauma. You get the good and the bad, but you have to move on. You have to go and get a college degree or, or learn a trade or get married or have kids or all these things that should be way more important in your mind than, oh, that one time Spurlock Gar we got in that firefight. Mm-hmm. But there are people that can't move on. Yeah. They, yeah. they cannot leave it behind. You know, and, you know, the podcast, it, it seems really hypocritical to tell people that when you're doing a platform <laughs> talking about the freaking deployment all the time. But we've said all along, this is a short-term project. We're trying to tell a story, yep. put it in recording, put it on paper, and then it's done. And yep. then it's on a shelf, and it's something that you can go back to when you're ready. But it just it's on a shelf. It's in a bottle. It's put away while you live your life. Mm-hmm. And you can come back to it when you want. But, yeah, I'm with Luke. If, <laughs> if, that, is, if that is the only thing that defines you as a human being, yeah. you've got to find something. Yeah, I had uh, in my most recent podcast, I was talking about the past. And if you let it, your past will be a ball and chain on your life Mm -hmm. for however long you... And what most people don't realize is that you're the one actually holding the chain. Like, (laughs) it's in your hands. You're the one that's just sitting there dragging it along behind you. And what you can do is... Like, yeah. <laughs> that's all it is and you can go back and look at it later yeah well yeah the analogy just, i used was like yeah. you can take a link or two from the chain yeah right just as a reminder and you can keep walking and then you yeah. look back and it's there and you have those links as reminders and mm-hmm. you, know, you just keep moving forward and you keep going but it's a uh it's a, it's a bitch man it it sounds i think we make it more complicated than it really needs to be yeah you're right, right? you did right and we yeah. just need it's it really is as easy as going Okay. Right. It's done. done. <laughs> just let's let's keep moving. So we've been rolling for just over a little bit an hour now, and I really want to say thank you both for being on because this is just it's been fantastic. It's been a great chat. And uh, do you have any final points on history on keeping your history? I would say uh, I like your carrying the links with you thing. The thing about those links, they need to be positive. Carry the positive forward, man, because there's so much positive out of experiencing combat, out of going to war. Of all the negative that's there, there's as much, if not potentially more positive because mm-hmm. you've got to you've got to you've got to see the the um, limitations of your morality. And that is not something that normal life affords you. Mm-hmm. And so or sorry, that's immorality. I meant mortality. Did. My bad. Okay, I was wondering Moral- where you going morality with works well though. I mean, morality as well. <laughs> But both, I'm yes. Rephrase. I'm going to rephrase that. Edit this out. Make me sound <laughs> Nope. <laughs> you get to see the limitations of your mortality. Yeah. Like you understand what it's like to, to be at the edge of the void and peering in and seeing the black dark suck you down. But to come back from that with a mind and a soul that's intact is a great positive force in your life. Use it as a positive, as a positive thing, as a motivator and push on and drive into that next thing and have it be a part of your narrative and not the only thing that dominates your narrative. Yeah, that's fantastic. Curtis? I mean, for me, when you're talking about your personal history, if you feel like you have things that need to be said or, you know, written down or recorded, write it down, man. You know, 
do some journaling. Write a, you don't have to publish a book. Do your, do your own podcast. Do like a vlog or something. If you want your kids or your grandkids to know what it was like to serve in Panjway with Canadian forces during Operation Medusa, don't let that history go away. Mm-hmm. You know, if you still remember things, write them down. It doesn't matter if the only person that reads it is the, the person cleaning out your house when you die in 80 years. It's there. Yep. And if you really feel like it was that important a part of your life, make sure it's documented. And then move on with your life. And if you ever want to wonder what it was like, go back and read it. Because it's not going to get any clearer the older you get. Yep. You yeah. know, the sooner you write it, this is one thing we learned with the podcast. The sooner you put it down, the clearer your memory of it is going to be. Because as time goes on, it's going to turn into a completely different thing in your mind. That's all, that's all I got. That's so true. My, I got a really good buddy of mine who does, um, <clears throat> he, he's up here in Canada. And he just drives around interviewing veterans. That's all he does. And he talks to some of the old boys, all the World War II and the Korea vets. And he's like, so, you know, I, I really wish I could have gotten to you earlier, but this is where we're at. Yeah. So let's get the story. And he talks to the new vets and they're like, yeah, I don't really want to get into it and so on and so forth. And he starts talking about how all these old vets, what the first thing they said was, man, I wish you could have gotten to us as young men when we first came home. Right. And and all the new guys are like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. I guess maybe I will talk about it, but (laughs) that's a hundred percent. Right. Um, so if anybody wants to follow you to social media wise, how would they do that? Well, all right. So that's easy. Uh, so on Facebook and Instagram, we're the Panjoy podcast. Just spelled out. Um, I'm sure yeah, Panjwage spells perfect, just the way it sounds. <laughs> just well, oh man, <laughs> that's uh, that, is a, that is a contentious topic in the Panjwage yeah. community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Proper yeah. military of way of spelling. The U.S. Is. military ways. P A N J W A I. Yeah. Um, there are other spellings, but actually, I think if you even Google the wrong spelling, you should be able to find us. Pretty much. There's, yeah. Not, yeah. there's not very many of us out there. Um, yeah. Panjway Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you get on iTunes, Spotify, anything like that, you can find us just by Googling the name of the podcast. I'm sure Chance will be generous enough to include a link in the show notes. Oh, yes. And, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very easy to find. We're a unique name, so there's not too many uh, Panjway Podcasts out there. And by that, I mean there's just one. It's us. <laughs> <laughs> no bigs. We're the no only show deal. in town. No big deal. Yeah. Well, we, we might take a couple months to get back to you. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. We, nah. we respond quickly. Curtis is really good about getting back to Like I said, I'm the face. He's, <laughs> he's, he's the guts of the operation. I would say he's the brains, but that's not really true either. So When you get two infantry guys together, I mean, you get, at least get a brain, right? Like, right. Ooh. You get two. Hey, I was, a, I was a patchy helicopter pilot. I got plenty of brains. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. But I also degree. got Chinese literature. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, most don't most helicopter pilots just enjoy the fact that they get to play with a stick between their legs? Hey, I'm not. I'm not going to say yes or no. I am going <laughs> to. I am going to. I am going to point you to the way that the Apache helicopter is laid out. And but we'll it's also that. yeah. Don't you have a stick over here as well? No, no, no. He's right that... behind. He's right behind me. Yeah. Uh, no, there you, you know, go. Kind of yeah. like we're, we're no, basically. Sp- is, is there two sticks on the Apache? <laughs> <laughs> one sticks in one hand. The other hand's on. There's always a, there is always a stick in one hand. That is yeah. true. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, and again, this, and, and to close this out, this got really gay. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> this is the way it is, man. I love it. So, again, thank you guys very much. I, I really, I, I can't thank you enough for being on here. This is great, and I think there's a lot of good information that we just went over to help really anybody that's listening. So, really, thanks, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And uh, thanks, man. part two, part D, at some point in the near future, maybe. Part two coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good.
That concludes this episode of The Toolbox. I really appreciate y'all listening. It has been my pleasure bringing you this awesome guest. If you like what you heard, please like, share, subscribe, and do all that awesome stuff. And I hope you can use some of the information that was offered. To all those putting on the line every day, first responders, military, veterans, civil servants, you guys are keeping us safe and keeping the country running. I really appreciate y'all. Hope to see you next time. Till then, stay open, stay humble, and stay focused. She won't.